Okay, the Renaissance. Quick overview. Um, these are some of the iconic images that come out of the Renaissance. The Mona Lisa, uh, God uh, giving life to Adam on the Sistine Chapel ceiling, um, Michelangelo's David in the Academia, and Brunelleschi's dome at the Santa Maria del Fiore, or the Duomo. Have you been to the top of it? Not to the top of it. 300 steps up to the top. It's quite a view. Um, so we're going to go through Renaissance art and ar architecture really quickly and uh, just do it as a broad overview. Um, take a look at the transitions. This is also partly a demo of what Keynote can do. It's pretty simple, actually. Keynote can do so much more, as you're going to find out. Uh, but there's some small biz bangs in here that will kind of give you a flavor for um, the um, uh, capabilities of Keynote. So for example, here's a few works from the Renaissance shuffled. The shuffle is kind of a cool uh, animation that you can do. And what you're seeing here as we move through these images clearly is that man is now becoming more interested in man again. Although religion is clearly still the focus of uh, the average person's daily life, uh, Christianity of course in particular, um, what you're starting to see here is a real reawakening, a, a rebirth, which is what Renaissance means, in that which is man. And you see it in the details of these images. Take a look up on the screen. You see it even here in this religious image. You're starting to see just a, a, an amazing attention to the, the human anatomy and human expression and all of the, um, using all of the types of techniques that were um, explained to you in Masters of Illusion, Light and Shadow, um, uh, different viewpoints and perspectives and so on and so forth. And again, you start to see an interest in things that aren't necessarily religious, like just you know a pair of gloves hanging up on a wall becomes something of remarkable beauty, remarkable interest. Um, and that's what really draws us into the Renaissance. And you start to see uh, more and more images of just daily life. Everything is not revolving around Christ going up on the cross or coming down from the cross uh, or the last judgment or so on and so forth. You see um, just an interest in what's going on around. And of course, landscape comes into that. Look at this image here. Wow, how incredible. Look at the curls of hair here. Just a real emphasis on the, on the beauty of human life and, and what can be seen if you pay attention to human life, what can be found that's beautiful and can be expressed. Of course, there was much in the Renaissance that was expressed uh, as, you know, ugly and, you know, Bosch's paintings of horrible people being eaten by horrible creatures in hell and all of that kind of stuff. But still, um, this is one of those images that really uh, makes you pause. This woman here, notice her fingers apart like that. Uh, instead of being together, it's just dramatic. I mean, her fingers are apart and it draw, your eye is drawn to it um, and her expression and the use of, uh, of atmospheric perspective in the back, emphasis on the human form, and how the human, the nude human form would have caused uh, some issue with the church as it emerges uh, out of this rebirth. And there were moments uh, during this, uh, like for example, when Michelangelo painted the Last Judgment on the Sistine Chapel uh, north wall. Uh, it was all nude figures, and, and the church actually responded to that by later having an artist come in and paint veils over those figures 
um, which were subsequently removed by restorers. Um, so there's lots of conflicts that come out of this time period. Okay. Look at that, just such a, uh, I mean, it's such a, an important story that's going on here, but just the fact that he's sort of holding his leg up as if somehow he's got a thorn in the bottom of his foot or something, um, that these uh, gestures are so human. There's such an interest in the human form and, and human movement. Okay, so obviously that leads us to the central theme of the Renaissance, which is humanism. Um, and this is a rebirth because it reaches back into Greece and Rome, into antiquity, into Greco-Roman culture and their interest in the human form and brings it back to life again. And you're going to hear the story of how that rebirth happens, how that information comes into Europe uh, via the Arabs who have translated it into, from, from the Greek into Arabic and then the Arabic into, into uh, uh, Latin, and from Latin then, as it comes over into Europe, translated into Spanish and French and German and English, um, and that these, these Greek and Roman texts uh, would cause this rebirth, this reflowering of interest in all things that are human. Um, so even here, the assumption of the Virgin, the rising of the Virgin up into, into heaven, still comes across as very human, because of the expressions that you're seeing here, the anguish, the pain, the sorrow, the joy, it's all there in the expressions and it's starting to feel 3D for the reasons that were outlined to you um, by Burke. Okay, so how does this happen? This is what Renaissance Italy looks like um, at the time of the beginning of uh, the Renaissance. And one of the things that you would wanna notice, imagine you know, life is a giant DBQ and if this is one of the documents that you're looking at here, and if the question is, why did the Renaissance happen? You would look at this document and try to figure out how this document helps explain why the Renaissance happened. And what you see here are, well, you don't see a unified Italy under a unified government. What you see are a number of pro provinces or papal states or, or duchies. You see these individual power entities all sort of crammed together onto this peninsula. And what you'd have to imagine is that they were intensely competitive with each other and constantly, constantly at war with each other. And as a result of this competition, artists get funded, writers get funded. So one republic trying to compete against another republic can do it through war, it can also do it through, hey, if I can just go get that Michelangelo fellow and I can get him uh, onto my payroll and I can have him paint my chapel, then I've got something that the other republic doesn't have. So you can almost imagine it like a series of football teams in the NFL sort of buying and trading these artists, commissioning them through uh, you know, patronage to come and do their work. And you, when you follow the movements of these artists, you actually see that they move around quite a bit. And they're often caught in the crossfire between competing states. This is very much the case with Michelangelo, who was caught, and da Vinci, caught between um, competing republics and had to flee back and forth and was being commissioned by both and so on and so forth. What you pull from this is the hyper-competitive environment led to this interest in hiring artists to show off the glory of this particular state and that helps explain why the Renaissance happens. Okay. All right. 
So obviously the center of the Renaissance is Florence. Uh, I hope one day you get to visit this incredible city. Uh, like I said, my wife and I snuck out of town, didn't tell anybody, and went and got married. We eloped. Um, the only person we told was my daughter, who was nine years old. We told her nine months before, and she kept the secret from everybody. Never mentioned it to a single person. It was quite astonishing, actually. Um, and then we sent out, after we got married, right here in the, uh, well, it's actually around the corner in the Palazzo Vecchio, we sent one email out to my sister, and that email replicated a hundred times within five minutes. It was all over the place. And a lot of people were really upset. I don't know why. They were just like, you know, how could you leave and just go get married? As, as if we deprived them of something, you know, a wedding or whatever. But we just didn't want to have anything to do with it. So that that's why I'm so connected to this city. I'd been there before, but uh, that's my personal connection to the city. It is, it's got a mana to it. It's got a, a, uh, uh, a karma, not a karma, what, what's the word, a mana, a, uh, a vibe to it that I've never found anywhere else in the world. It, even today, it's still as creative as it was back during the Renaissance. This is the Arno River, which the city has had a love-hate relationship with because it keeps flooding. Um, and this is the, uh, this is the uh, Ponte Vecchio, which is the great bridge uh, across the Arno, uh, which has become uh, the sort of gold capital of Europe. It's where all the jewelry sh uh, shops are. They're all sort of attached uh, to the outside of this bridge. It's where we bought our rings. You know, there's like hordes of tourists who go back and forth, all the Japanese tourists with their little red flags, or the, the leader with the red flag, and then everybody's wearing like a red baseball cap, and they, they go over the bridge, and then they come back and all that, and people take millions of pictures and so on and so forth. Anyway, um, so uh, the Arno is important to Florentine culture, and it's, um, its outlet to the sea. This is the Palazzo Vecchio, which is the city, um, civic center of the city, not the religious center, but the civic center. Uh, and uh, we got married up on the second floor up there. We thought it was going to be in a little sort of, you know, official office, you know, with a little desk in the corner or something. It turned out to be the palace room uh, when we walked in. It was very cute because it was, you know, all tapestries and everything, but they had a little boombox in the corner playing Vivaldi as we walked in the door, um, which was pretty funny. And then a very, very tall Italian man who did the marriage ceremonies, civic, you know, not civil, not religious, wearing a giant Italian flag sashed around his body. We called him the sash man. And he did the whole thing in Italian. And my wife was paying very close attention to the word obeo. She was not interested in pledging to any obedience to me. So she wasn't going to say, I do, if the guy said, do you, you know, pledge to obey, you know, that kind of thing. It was funny. OK, there's the Duomo. And so the main emphasis of, uh, of our movement into the Renaissance is, as Burke noted the other day, the movement from 2D to 3D. So here we see the Middle Ages. It's flat. Uh, it, uh, it, it tends not to evoke a whole lot of emotion. It's certainly not humanist. And then we make the transition to the Renaissance, and we see these four figures right here and their expressions alone are quite remarkable. I mean, they're just sort of looking around, and yet with the use of light and shadow um, and with uh, atmospheric perspective and so on and so forth, 
we start to see a three-dimensionality to this that's quite remarkable. So this is a work by Giotto, and again, Burke covered this. But you see, since Giotto is on such a, the early end of the Renaissance, he's really a, a bridge between the, the late High Middle Ages and the Renaissance, that he's struggling mightily to begin to see things in a more 3D perspective. He's really wanting to find the keys to 3D to linear perspective, but he's not quite there yet. So you see a lot of emotion. You see certainly an interest in all things human here, in the real suffering of uh, all of those who are experiencing the death of Christ and all of that. But it's still not quite at that place where that where the linear perspective causes the whole thing to really jump off the page. Then we get to um, Piero della Francesca, who, um, if you're starting to read Van Doren, uh, uh, Van Doren talks about him and about this particular painting um, in depth. And I'm going to talk about it for just a couple of minutes. So this particular painting called The Flagellation by Francesca, Piero della Francesca, is really a marker if you can get yourself to a point in your life, it may take a whole lifetime, it has for me, where you understand that certain things are markers and you can talk about them uh, as markers. Like, for example, the Constitution of the United States, or maybe more appropriately, the Declaration of Independence. It's a marker. Everybody knows it as one of those moments in which things were different from one moment to the next. Well, this painting represents that, because here you have Christ in that moment of flagellation, he's being whipped by the Roman guards simply to torture him before he's crucified. They're mocking him because there has been this claim that he's the son of God. And in any medieval painting in 2D on a flat surface, Christ would have been right up there front and center. And what Van Doren tells you is that you've got a literally a shift. So here's Christ front and center. There's a shift that happens. And what you get front and center are these three sort of gay, dandy, not gay in that sense, but just gay, you know, uh, metro. These are metro guys here. These three guys who are just, uh, what, they're oblivious to the fact that Christ is being whipped in the background. This is humanism. This is the switch. This is the moment when you start to see the interest in things human come to the forefront. forefront and religion begins to recede into the background, although it never disappears, never disappears altogether. Okay, and in, in the use of, uh, of uh, linear perspective, the vanishing point, which comes from Brunelleschi's scientific uh, approach to this, um, you begin to see that kind of depth. Also, the use of color is important to this process as well, as they begin to explore uh, even more brighter and definitive colors. So religion recedes and all things human come forward. Piero della Francesca. Ooh, did you see that? Everybody? Let me go back one more time. This is one of those great transitions. I like that one. Okay. Okay, here we have Masaccio. You already are familiar with Masaccio because he's the one who painted the Trinity, which is the Christ on the cross, and it looks as if the wall has literally receded out of the chapel. This is his painting, The Tribute Money, um, and there are a number of notable things about this, uh, lines, which I'll get to in a second. Uh, but here in this particular image, the way that you see it here, it's really color. You're starting to see what are known as Renaissance colors, the deep orange, the deep magenta, the deep 
blue uh, or indigo, um, this super remarkable kind of yellow. Um, and I don't know why, but personally I react to those colors. They're, they are my favorite colors, those deep. You can see how I selected the background. You know, uh, I just tend to be attracted to those kinds of colors. You also see the use of line. This is uh, Christ in the center here. Um, there's a certain symmetry to this thing in the use of line. Um, and there's one more image of this here in the way that the painting is transected, that there are quadrants and that things are laid out and that the vanishing point that you're really looking at here comes here. You can see the vanishing points going this direction through these particular lines and it disappears off behind these uh, palm trees in the back there. And then here are these two figures right here who are off to the side and just uh, sort of talking with each other, perhaps shaking hands. So we're starting to see humanism in all of its complex forms emerging. Here's another uh, painter, Sandro Botticelli. You guys uh, probably know his Birth of Venus, uh, which is arguably one of the most famous paintings in the world. This is Madonna of the Magnificent, or Magnificat. Um, and uh, again, you see humanism emerging here. Uh, even though this is a religious theme, this is the, the, the Virgin Mary. She's given birth to Christ here, um, and she's surrounded by these um, adoring individuals and just look at her expression. It's such love that she's expressing here as she looks down and, and in this humanist approach, this rebirth of things Greek and Roman and then uh, an expression that goes forward, the interest in, in human emotion is part of that element of humanism. Okay, and we're going to uh, see a number of lines form here can see these white lines. So there's really, there's a sense of the circular here. There's a sense of movement almost, which is captured uh, by those lines. Let me go back and do that again. Uh, will I come up? Yeah, here we go. See the lines forming. And again, this is a technique that you can use um, in Keynote, which is wonderful. Okay, so you're, things are, are being arranged in certain ways. Okay, here's uh, Raphael. Uh, Burke calls him the final master of the Renaissance. Um, he works not with Michelangelo, but they are commissioned at the same time to do work in the Vatican, which is the Papal Palace. Um, and this is Pope Leo X with his two cardinals. Very famous image. Notice uh, amidst all the coloration and all of the linear perspective and the depth uh, to this thing that the Pope is holding a spoon in his hand. It's such a small little thing, but you wouldn't have found that in a medieval painting. And yet here he has this little spoon and yet he's probably reading the Bible uh, wondering what that spoon is about. Was he eating something just prior? Who knows? But there's this little mystery sitting here. Okay. And again, the deep colors. Okay, so again, here you see the lines, the vanishing point that goes off back into the distance, the very carefully laid out lines of his arms, and the way that his head is pulled back like that so that it gives it a sense of depth and also a sense of majesty. After all, he is the Pope. Okay. 
All right, and then Raphael's School of Athens, which you're familiar with because Burke ends his film um, on the School of Athens. I actually have the School of Athens poster on the back side of that board right there. I haven't turned it over. And it's also on the cover of your History of Knowledge. Uh, Tori, you found something on uh, Wikipedia, right, that explained who all the figures are in here. Um, I actually have a few. So there's Leonardo da Vinci, and he's Plato. There's Michelangelo as uh, Herodotus or Heraclitus. Um, there's Euclid, the father of geometry, and that's Bramate, the great uh, um, architect who actually built the, the, um, uh, the Basilica of St. Peter's, although he didn't finish the dome. Michelangelo finished the dome. And then, of course, as we remembered, here's Raphael back in the corner. He's painted himself into the painting looking out. And again, you see it slightly differently in terms of the way that the thing is transected. Um, it's so carefully laid out. The symmetry is, is um, a function of a linear perspective. And the vanishing point that goes off into the distance, out into the clouds, out there. There's really multiple vanishing points in here. And the very heroic figure figures up here that uh, bookend the whole scene. This is really quite a remarkable piece. Okay, then we of course have Da Vinci. These are all the great masters. That's a, uh, a portrait, uh, a self-portrait of him, a drawing. Of course, uh, Leonardo's The Last Supper, which is in a small uh, uh, church in Milan. Uh, I didn't get to see it. I got there on a Monday all ready to go in and see The Last Supper and they're all closed on Monday. Everything's closed in Milan on Monday. I was really bummed. Um, so didn't actually get to see this thing in person. Um, what's left of The Last Judgment is really just fragments. It's mostly been rebuilt. Um, it, didn't, uh, it didn't make it through time very well. Um, so there's really just little bits and pieces of it that have been, it's been reconstructed out of those bits and pieces. But what you look at today is really just a small fraction of what was originally on the wall. Um, so th this particular Last Supper uh, that Christ has with his disciples is um, famous for a number of reasons, not the least of which is uh, that it, it's in the use of linear perspective and the vanishing points and all of that that Michelangelo begins to um, really realize exactly uh, what the mathematics and the science of this particular style of art is. Um, but more recently, and here you can see the groupings of the disciples as he did this, but more recently, uh, take a look up on screen here. What you see now is the seeds of Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code. And uh, I'm not gonna, well, I guess I'm gonna give it away to you if you haven't read it too bad, if you haven't seen the movie too bad. But the, the central thesis here is that this is in fact not John, one of the disciples, this is Mary Magdalene. And that Leonardo positioned it this way because there was evidence that Christ and Mary Magdalene had had children, that they were married and had a child. And shocking as that may sound, that's why I threw in here the Da Vinci Code, Christ had a child with Mary Magdalene, shocking, um, that this is, the, this is a work of fiction. Uh, but people treated it as if it was nonfiction. I think Dan Brown sort of tried to present it as if it was nonfiction and then backed up really fast when the world, the, the Christian world, exploded against him. 
But the idea of the V, of course, is that sign of femininity and that, that da Vinci painted it this way because he was part of a society that was protecting this secret. And the secret was the Christ that had a child. And in fact, there was a line of Christ's descendants that came all the way into European history. I mean, that's a shocker, even in fiction, I guess. That's why the book was such a bestseller and why the film was such a, you know, box office hit and why Angels and Demons, which is coming out on May 15th, uh, will be another, you know, it's all fiction, people, calm down. Uh, but the church was not calm about this at all. Okay, off we go. Of course, with uh, Da Vinci, you get the Mona Lisa. Um, and the, the great debate about this, beyond his use of light, light and shadow, no debate about that, but the great debate is, in fact, her expression. What is this expression? In the past, I've had students sort of try to sit up and mimic this expression. Can you capture the ambiguity of this expression? Is she simply looking out and saying, you idiots? Is, she, is, she, is this a sarcastic look? Is this a calm look? Is she angry? Is she sad? Is she happy? What exactly is this? Or is this the most neutral expression you've ever seen? I don't know. But people debate this thing constantly. They also debate who she was. There's been lots of digging in history to try and figure out who this woman was and why she was the subject of his painting and so on and so forth. But what Burke emphasizes is that it was Leonardo who figured out that the interposed air, which we know today as to be particles in the air, is what causes the blurring and the bluing of backgrounds as you look farther off into the distance. You want to observe that, go down this afternoon uh, around sunset and, and look off to the Waianae Mountains, and you'll see how blurry they are. Uh, although our air tends to be really clear, maybe you should fly to LA and do it there where the air has got a lot of particles in it. Um, but that's that notion of um, the perspective of disappearance, the Mona Lisa. And of course, we see that there's a certain symmetry to this. And this is captured in this very carefully organized and symmetrical painting. And again, how the eyes look. And the more you stare at it, the more you see. It's quite remarkable. I've seen it, stood in front of it, was very excited, and then was very disappointed. It's behind glass. You can't get within 15 feet of it uh, for security reasons. It's really quite small. And for some reason, being in front of it in person turned out to be not so special. I, I would love, I would look at this for hours, but standing in front of the real painting, somehow it just didn't turn out to be the case. It just wasn't that great. Okay, this is uh, out of Leonardo's notebook, and of course, humanism is jumping off the screen here at you in uh, this, the symmetry of man. Uh, and this is again one of those iconic images of the Renaissance used all the time. And you see his notes here. Remember, Leonardo wrote uh, uh, from right to left and backwards. Uh, just a little bit of paranoia on his part. He didn't want people catching up with his secrets. Uh, the way to read it is to read it through a mirror. Um, who knows why he was paranoid about people catching up with his secrets. Then we move on to Michelangelo, um, whose most famous work is the Sistine Chapel. Um, he was commissioned by Pope Julius II to paint this ceiling, which had nothing on it. Um, and what he produced is quite remarkable. There's a great book by Ross King called um, um, The Pope and the Painter. 
and it chronicles how Pope Julius II, they fought with each other constantly. There was constant conflict between the painter and the pope, but the pope was paying the painter, Michelangelo, to paint this ceiling, and uh, he had commissioned him to put all the great stories of the Bible up onto the ceiling, and there, there's some really remarkable things in this book about how he painted it. In the beginning, it was all done with drawings. You know, with fresco, you push the drawing up again, and you make little dots with a with a point of a pen or, a, or something sharp, and then you remove it off of the plaster, and then you paint on it. It's like you know, painting uh, in a coloring book, and you, you have to do it that way. But as you follow the ceiling across towards the wall where the Last Judgment is. Um, he increasingly abandoned that and began to freeform, painting on his back or painting standing up 150 feet up in the air, painting these figures that when you see them from the ground um, look perfectly real and they're perfectly uh, uh, um, 3D in that sense. Um, so very remarkable. And by the end, when he had he was actually just painting freeform at the end. Uh, I saw a show the other day on TV about an art teacher in California who uh, did something where she had her art students lie down on the ground under their desks and paint the bottom of their chairs, their paper that had been put on the bottom of their chairs, to simulate what it would have been like to paint from down below looking up at something. Um, so very remarkable. One uh, great book, The Agony and the Ecstasy by um, Irving Stone, about this in particular. Uh, so there it is. Okay, and again, we see the focus of this thing. You can do this in Keynote. Is God not quite touching, but about to touch Adam and to give him life? He is not yet an alive being. And of course, this is Michelangelo's vision of God, who doesn't look like he's a particularly happy person. Uh, you know, he, he looks a little angry. He looks like, well, I, I don't know. Uh, but this is not a calm looking God. But this is one of the images that we get stuck with when we imagine God. I certainly did when I saw this as a child. I thought, okay, that's what God looks like. Okay. All right, so Renaissance sculpture. Um, we shift over to this particular theme. Um, obviously, it's hugely influenced by Greco Roman sculpture which we went through back in August. Um, when we looked at all of those different sculptures that the Greeks did, including the discus thrower and all that, and you see that coming out in Renaissance sculpture. Very realistic, uh, very symmetrical, very proportional, and uh, very much a sense of movement and activity, and that's what the focus of the clip, The Power of the Past, uh, will be on when we get to that um, in a little bit. Okay, see uh, Gilberti's Doors and Michelangelo's David. Have you seen the David? Have you been in the Academia? Alia? Yes. You have, okay. Mm -hmm. All right, so humanism and individual individuality. You start to see coming out, as, as I've said before, this interest in all things human, and this is expressed as much in sculpture as it is in painting. So this is Gilberti's doors, which actually, when you see them in the baptistry uh, outside the Duomo, th these are not the real doors. Uh, these are copies. The real doors are uh, inside a museum. Um, and they're even more remarkable when you see them inside the museum. So these are the copies that we're looking at, just as the David that's outside the Palazzo Vecchio is also 
a copy. You have to go into the academia further down the road to see the actual David. But what we're seeing here is just amazing 3D linear perspective in sculpture, this uh, called high relief. Gilberti's doors, here's a close-up of this, quite remarkable um, in uh, the level of detail that he was able to uh, achieve in these doors. And again, in the high relief, even you see this angel flying through this door right here. Uh, and again, humanism because of how human the forms are and the interest in human anatomy. This is Donatello's David. He's a dandy uh, little fellow. He's actually quite small. Um, and when you put this, when Donatello's David side by side with Michelangelo's David, you have an awesome opportunity for a comparison. Um, the fact that he's wearing this hat has always struck me. Um, I mean, this is a kid who, who slew he slew a, a giant. He is, he is either in this one, he has not done it yet or, or it's over with, but he has, has killed Goliath. Um, but here he looks sort of like a kid who's heading out to you know, go to the beach or something. Michelangelo's David is completely different. This is the David uh, in a more contemplative state. He's contemplating this moment in which he's going to um, slay Goliath. Uh, but the, and the stone, obviously, that will go in his sling is in his right hand here. Um, and there's a, actually almost a disproportionate size to his head and his neck. It's, it almost seems a little bigger than it's supposed to be. Maybe that's an illusion of the hair uh, that he has. It's all curly and all of that. But um, this is one of those markers that, well, as well. This is a marker that really shows that Greco-Roman sculpture had been reborn again during the Renaissance. And by the way, if you've ever noticed these cracks right here, these, the original David was actually out in front of the Palazzo Vecchio. That will be explained to you at first. And it was, uh, th this was the great uh, moment for the Florentines to have the David here. Um, but there was a religious riot that happened soon after, and somebody threw a chair out of the tower, and it landed on his arm and broke it off, at which point the Florentines hustled the, the David out of the square. It would never be there again, and the arm was put back on again. So it's actually broken. And if you ever get a chance to be in front of Leonardo's, or I'm sorry, Michelangelo's Pieta, where uh, the the uh, Mother Mary is holding the dead Christ. That's in the Vatican. Did you guys go on the Europe trip? No, you guys weren't part of the Europe trip. If you you've have you seen it? Uh, the Pieta. You've not been in the in the Vatican in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Yeah. So the Pieta uh, is is the Mother Mary holding the dead Christ child or the dead Christ after he's come off the cross used to be able to walk right up, literally right up, and look at it as if you could almost touch it. I was that close to it when I was in the seventh grade. But two weeks after I was there, uh, a crazed man with a ball-peen hammer got up on it and smashed it, smashed her arm, his fingers, her nose. And it was repaired, and you almost can't see it anymore. But now you have to stand 15 feet back, and she's behind glass and totally protected. Um, remarkably, the David, you can still walk around. Uh, my wife describes the moment when she first saw this. She said she actually fainted. <laughs> she came in and walked up. She was nearby, 
and started to collapse. A guard was standing behind her and shoved a chair under her as she fell. She felt faint looking at the David. I recall when I saw it the first time that there was a whole gaggle of women who were behind him and looking up and they were all like chattering away and in Italian. It was pretty funny. They were clearly looking at his rear end um, and admiring it. Off we go. Hello. There we go. Okay, so here you see a close-up of his right hand and also a close-up of his face. And again, uh, Bill Moyer's Power of the Past, we'll get into this a little deeper shortly. Okay, Renaissance architecture, obviously the Duomo, St. Peter's Basilica, which is the, uh, the, the cathedral of the Catholic Church and uh, the home of the Pope. Um, and this is a, a smaller um, Renaissance chapel that we'll uh, see a little bit later. So there are classical influences. Obviously, this is uh, Romanesque in the sense of there, it's still a little bit of the Gothic because of how high they reach up into the sky. But these are solid Romanesque structures with heavy walls, um, still lots of light, but there, there's a real sense of that kind of Roman grandeur that you see. There's mathematical harmony, especially in the building of these domes. Um, the use of the circle is an important part of Renaissance architecture. And we're going to look a little bit more at some of the details. Okay, so here you, you see um, still the medieval Gothic influence, uh, but at the same time you're starting to see that Renaissance interest in decoration and in the coverings of uh, the pillars and of the altar and so on and so forth. Um, this is the Cathedral of Florence, and this is a Brunelleschi uh, statue. Um, and again, he's the one that uh, uh, Burke identified as the sort of father of the scientific method of linear perspective or the vanishing point. This is Brunelleschi's dome. Again, Ross King, who wrote the book about Julius II and Michelangelo, also wrote a book about Brunelleschi's dome, and that this dome is an architectural wonder. The fact that this thing stands is truly remarkable that nobody had ever attempted a dome of this size and weight prior to this, and he was flying blind on this. Um, and yet, <clears throat> the dome still stands. It's an architectural wonder. Um, the reason why it stands is the way that it was constructed. And in fact, there's actually a steel band around the bottom or the base of this dome, which was only discovered much later because he didn't mention it in his notes in his architectural notes. It was discovered when they were doing some drilling to see if there were any deficiencies in the dome that needed to be corrected just recently. And they discovered that it actually had a steel band that was holding it together. If you want to read that book, it's actually a short read and, and really a wonderful read. And this is obviously St. Peter's Basilica. You guys know the other side of it, which is the colonnades that reach out uh, to, to bring the Catholic uh, faithful uh, into the fold. Here's the inside of St. Peter's. This is actually the main altar or uh, the canopy that's over the main altar. This is uh, the barrel vaulting inside uh, St. Peter's Basilica. And this is all the work of Bramate. And then the dome itself of St. Peter's was designed by Michelangelo and finished by Michelangelo. Hello. Here we go. Come on. 
So again, this is looking up into uh, Michelangelo's uh, central dome. Okay, this is a smaller work by Bramate, Tempietto, but again, it represents uh, that interest in Greco-Roman architecture. Uh, it's not light and spidery. You're starting to see the reemergence of the Romanesque, the solid, the uh, uh, heavily constructed. Okay, Italian Renaissance writers. We're only going to just briefly skip over them. I think Van Doren gives them uh, tremendous coverage. Um, and they will be of interest to you. Um, they're of interest to us. Uh, well, one of them in particular will be of interest to us. Um, first, we have uh, Dante, who wrote the Divine Comedy, the, the Many Circles of Hell, uh, so on and so forth. Dante is a key figure in Florence. He's a, a, probably the iconic literary figure of Renaissance Florence. And again, Van Doren talks about him. We have Petrarch. Uh, whose uh, love letters to Laura were, uh, have been explored by students over the years. Um, he's a humanist, a scholar, a poet, uh, and Van Doren has much to say about Petrarch. We have Giovanni Boccaccio, who I think you're already a little bit familiar with because he's the eyewitness that you used when we talked about the Black Death. He's the one that you heard his words spoken in the Black Death film at the end of term two. It was narrated by uh, Leonard Nimoy Spock. It, this is him. This is the man who lived through the Black Death and actually recorded it in great detail. Again, a poet and humanist. He wrote, uh, he recorded his thoughts in something called the Decameron. Um, we also have the Northern Renaissance because uh, these ideas were carried uh, up to the north. You're already familiar with Albrecht Dürer. Um, Burke identifies him as the one who first uses multiple vanishing points in a single engraving. Uh, but of course, he's much more than just that, uh, that he's really the person who comes down and gathers those Renaissance techniques and puts them into his little cultural backpack and then travels north and spreads them up to the north and is hugely influential in the northern countries of of Germany and Holland uh, in terms of the movement of, of the Renaissance North. Then you're already familiar with Hans Holbein the Younger. He's the guy who paints this painting here. And by the way, for your art history projects, if you're interested, this book is really cool. It takes single works of art and breaks them out all the way around, sort of like how to, how to do a painting, how to analyze a painting. And this is Holbein's painting. If you want to know more about what was going on in this painting than just the skull. This is available to you here. And obviously a pioneer of anamorphic art, but, all, but more appropriately, he's the, he's the portrait painter. He's the iconic portrait painter of, of the Northern Renaissance. This is obviously King Henry VIII, who had his many wives. Any of you see uh, the other Boleyn girl? Remember we talked about that in the last term? That's him, okay. Jan van Eck, who we looked at yesterday, in the marriage of Giovanni Anolfini. Uh, he's a crossover between the, the high Middle Ages and the Renaissance. And what you're seeing here is uh, in, in this Northern Renaissance is the, the emergence of an even more photorealistic approach to painting. And uh, Van Eck is really the pioneer at the beginning of this, 
But if you study, if your interest is in photorealism, you should be looking in the books before you make your choice uh, at the, uh, what they call the lowlands or the, those painters who lived in Holland and the Netherlands and in Germany. And Van Eck is one of those people. This may have been a self-portrait of him, it's unknown. Okay, the English Renaissance, it has its own particular flavor to it. Uh, there's Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, which I guarantee you you'll read in college. Uh, it's just a bunch of pilgrims who are off on a religious pilgrimage to go to a holy site, and it's all the stories that they tell each other. Many of them are quite uh, viewer discretion advised. Uh, I saw Canterbury Tales when I was in the seventh grade, sitting next to my father in a theater in London, and I thought my father was going to have a heart attack. He was laughing so hard. And because I was an idiot seventh grader, I had no idea what the stories were about. But he did. They were quite body, quite viewer discretion advised. I feel like I missed out on something there um, because I never saw it again. There's Thomas More's Utopia, Spencer's The Fairy Queen, and then, of course, the great playwrights, Johnson and Marlowe. But of course, we're looking at Shakespeare who arguably brought about, what is it, 4,700 words into the English language, something like that. Still much debate about whether Shakespeare is actually one person, uh, whether there was a real Shakespeare or not. Uh, that debate continues on, but he's part of the mix as well. Okay, so as we come to the end, we come back to that central question, which is, well, your editor-in-chief has selected Gutenberg to be the, 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 on the cover and to be the person who's featured in this special edition on the Renaissance of Time Magazine. And uh, that's the question that's sitting out in front of us. And I finish with this particular image. This is Botticelli's The Birth of Venus. I would say that along with the Mona Lisa the, and the David, that this image may be like in the top three of iconic Renaissance images. This is the rebirth of Greco-Roman culture right here. There is nothing Christian about this at all. This is the birth of Venus. And if you look at her figure and the way it's painted, this, this image of woman is so hugely influential. Flip through any Vogue or Cosmopolitan or Red Book or W or Oprah or whatever, and you'll see this as the idealized image over and over and over again. So in some ways, Botticelli gave us something very beautiful, and in some ways he gave us something that none of us can live up to, and much debate ever since about whether this idealized form is something that is destructive to people who try to achieve it um, in their many ways. And I think that this is the great transition at the end, and I'll hit it can slow it way, way down to like five seconds. Okay? There you go. That's it. We're done.